Hello and welcome back to Murderland Chicago, a deep dish of death. My name is Jonathan Sanchez-Leos and I'm here with Meredith Halsey. So first of all, we're going to be doing a corrections corner real quick. Um, and it's actually because two listeners reached out to us, which I'm super excited about and super happy about, uh, because I made a mistake uh, when I erroneously said that Kim Basinger was the lead actress in a movie called Basic Instinct, and she is not. The person who has that honor is actually the incomparable Sharon Stone. Uh, Meredith, I am very happy that we have a listener base that cares deeply about 90s divas, uh, because I honestly would not want it any other way. And just for everyone else to know, too, if you ever hear us make a mistake that we, you know, we definitely did not mean to make whatsoever, uh, send us a, a message either on Gmail or on Instagram, and we would love to include it on our corrections corner as well also meredith i want to give us a little pat on the back because um i just realized that we have done 13 episodes together um you know when i compared how we sounded on episode one to episode 13 it's so amazing just to hear that transformation and i think you know when we first started this we were very scared about you know how to even approach this subject you know neither one of us had ever done a podcast before and so you know i just want to give us our kudos for sticking with it two people with zero (laughs) <laughs> zero i mean zero technical training in this aspect i think we've done a really great job do you have any thoughts on it it's been a nice opportunity to learn some new software and practice storytelling <laughs> i mean yeah because for people who don't know we do not have a production team behind us whatsoever um this is really just me and meredith uh clacking away and figuring things out as we go so also just to connect this to everyone else too if you're out there and you want to start a podcast you know do not be discouraged by the first couple of episodes really just stick with it uh because you really can only get better by just trying so with that meredith we are nearing the end of season two uh which as we've talked about numerous times already has been covering dangerous duo killers and boy do we have a doozy to cover today just as a recap we started off this season with larry eiler and his alleged accomplice dr little a duo of psychosexual killers who may have been responsible for the deaths of over 25 young men in the Midwest. Then we covered Leopold and Loeb, two wannabe pseudo-intellectual brats who decided that killing a young boy in the, quote, perfect crime, unquote, would bring them closer together. And today we are finishing this season off by bringing those two themes together with the story of Patricia or Patty Colombo and Frank DeLuca, a pair of suburban brats who, when faced with being separated, decided that their intensely psychotic sexual relationship, which was riddled with seedy motel orgies and bestiality, needed to be preserved at all costs, including the killing of Patty's entire family. And like in the last episode, this case is also about a killing that doesn't neatly fit into the definition of a serial killer, which is someone who kills multiple people with a cooling off period between the murders. 
Patty Colombo and Frank DeLuca killed three people in one night. So where is the so-called cooling off period between the victims here, Jonathan? Yeah, so I mean, cooling off is a very loaded term, right? Um, And I think that when you start to think about this from a legal perspective, it starts to get very, very tricky because even something, you know, as commonplace as murder is, you know, there's a whole concept of malice aforethought, right? So you thought about it beforehand. The construction of that aforethought, depending on where you are, you know, if you're in one state, it might be it has to have been a couple of hours, right? In another state, it could have been a couple of seconds. So when we talk about what that cooling off period is, it's such a subjective thing. If you kill three people and they're in the same house, but they're in different rooms, didn't you kind of cool off between each killing? It's not as simple as I think a lot of people want to make it out to be. And when we think about serial killers in general, let's say a serial killer kills someone kills someone when they are 13 years old and then kills someone else when they're 80 years old. Is that cooling off period mm-hmm. too cool? <laughs> so- it just because it, it's something that we want to highlight as being something that's not necessarily cut and dry. I think our podcast is comfortable with the fact that this is a very gray area. It is not as black and white as I think a lot of people want to make it seem to be. Nothing is ever as simple as mm-hmm. it seems at first. And I think we've also spoken about this before. You've recommended Peter Vronsky's book to mm-hmm. me, uh, Serial Killers, The Method and Madness of Monsters, yeah. as a source of deeper exploration into exactly what characteristics define a serial killer, at least in popular mm-hmm. thought right now. But, you know, to be transparent here, I have not <laughs> been able to read it yet. So could you give us a bit of an overview? Sure. So... This book, Serial Killers, The Method and Madness of Monsters, I think it gives away a lot in the title itself, right? It's the closest thing we have to a serial killer connoisseur Bible, and that's because it came out during a time when serial killer kind of fascination had hit a zenith. Um, So it comes out in 2004. It's encapsulating this cultural construct of serial killers as monsters, which I know you and I have talked a lot about as being not necessarily the most up-to-date understanding of what a serial killer is. Vronsky is operating in the space of serial killer in a monster role that's relegated to a genetic anomaly that expresses itself over millennia. What he's saying is that serial killers are just a part of society, which we're saying too. But what he's saying is that you can't do anything to stop them. He's saying that basically every blue moon, every <laughs> every 20, 30 years, there magically kind of arises from the genetic pool of humanity, these individuals who are intent on killing other people. Like a, as natural as a periodic pandemic? <laughs> Yes, I think it's very much kind of a epidemiological construction of what a serial killer is. And I don't think that we're disagreeing with him. The issue is not necessarily whether or not someone is born with that certain set of traits, right, that make them antisocial enough with enough, you know, pathology psychologically. What we're saying is that in order for that to express itself, though, 
you really need to have society as being your, you know, partner in crime. <laughs> For lack of a better term. <laughs> you know, so when Vronsky's talking about serial killers, he's operating in that mindset of what a serial killer is. And I think what we are trying to say here is that we can't just keep ourselves confined to this very limited construct because we end up missing a lot of information if we do that. The other thing that Vronsky does not do a really good job of in general in the book is discussing how all the isms in society actually play into these killers and how power and intersectionality create the mechanisms by which these monsters can be expressed within our culture. He is a cisgender, white male, criminal justice PhD from Toronto, so it makes sense that he writes from that very perspective. He's still kind of operating in this ubermensch mentality, right? That a serial killer is special, right? <laughs> like, this idea that you're rich because you worked for it, <laughs> not, not because, you know, like you were born in a culture and from a family, right? They might have set you up for that. So we have to take what he says with the understanding that his perspective is very much coded in a criminal justice kind of ideology. But any goodwill I have for Vronsky went out the window with his second book, which is Female Serial Killers, How and Why Women Become Monsters, which have you heard of this book, Meredith? No. It is. I am not angry that you have not read this book. Um, and there's a reason why I've never recommended it to you. It's because it reads like the true crime version of Ben Shapiro's review for Barbie the movie. It is upsetting because... You can tell that he is just in his office, clacking away at his computer, super angry that people would create this narrative that men are more likely to be serial killers than women. Yeah. I'm not trying to say that women don't have homicidal tendencies. Of course, there are women out there who want to kill people. But he misses the point in trying to, you know, make a really good point, right? Which is the fact that anyone can kill. But in making that argument, he forgets how much misogyny is entrenched within our culture. And that the main right. thing separating men and women being killers is not necessarily intent. It is a socially assigned lethality that we have given men over women. And that has nothing to do with this idea that feminists have run amok and said that men, you know, are too violent. Like, nothing to do with that. But I'm arguing that as responsible true crime enthusiasts, we need to move forward in our understanding and realize that it's not so cut and dry. You know, you can't have these conversations about quote, monsters, unquote, without delving into sociological disparities that created these apparent dichotomies. They don't exist in a vacuum. None of us exist in a vacuum. So to really understand it, you have to, you you can't confuse the, the trees for the forest, basically. And we're trying to look at the whole fucking forest. Right. And also one thing that comes to mind is that because there is sexual dimorphism in addition to our social yeah. structure, um, you're not going to get a lot of women who are able 
to kill as violently and with mm-hmm. brute force as many men have been able to do in the past. But also because of cultural expectations, many women who have been killers have been overlooked. Yep. A notable example that, that we're not going to cover in this podcast is Lizzie Borden. Yeah. I love that case because the trial was so ridiculous. I mean, mm-hmm. she's clearly the prime suspect. <laughs> A lot of evidence pointing right at her. And because she was a woman and a Sunday school teacher, the jury was completely flummoxed. And they were like, there's no way. Right, right. (laughs) It's not possible. Mm -hmm. But a little closer to home, Chicagoland has our own example of a woman killer, Louise Vermilia. And she was in Barrington and killed quite a few people, but it was with poison during a time in our history where dying from food poisoning was common. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple of things that are kind of flummoxing our historical data. Yeah. And what's flummoxing it is not the actual kind of core data. It is our social interpretation and analysis of that data. Because at the end of the day, women kill. Which we're going to cover today. This is the whole reason why we're talking about this gender disparity. Patty Colombo killed her family. You know, but the way that society wants to digest that information, that's really what we're trying to unpack here. Because the way that society sees it is through a very gendered lens. And the way that we understand their lethality is also gendered. But... I think what we're doing that Vronsky does not do is we're not saying that this is somehow unfair to men just because of the fact that, you know, more serial killers or more what we kind of socially construct as being serial killers have been seen as men. We're saying that this is a fault of society and that the way that we have analyzed and interpreted this information is incorrect because it is privileging one gender over the other. So, we're not using Vronsky's 2004 discourse on the subject, even though most people refer to it as their way of defining serial killer. More recently, the FBI has coined its own definition via one of its own expert symposia, and that is serial murder, the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offenders in separate events. Meredith, how do you feel about this definition? I think it's interesting. Mm -hmm. It aligns more with the Oxford English Dictionary's definition of the word serial. Mm -hmm. Right? I like that. So the OED defines serial as belonging to, forming part of, or consisting of a series in respect either of sequence in time or of conceptual order. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, so the FBI is a bit closer to the actual meaning of the word, and I like that. So how do you feel about it? So my issue with it is it ignores the Charles Manson paradigm, which is recognized in popular culture, but would not fall into the definition of these so-called experts. Because what if you are aiding, abetting, forcing, coercing, or any other related term that would end up splitting the liability for that murder? What if you create a model that's copied after? 
I mean, copycat killers exist, and would they not have acted but for the inspiration of a prior actor that they can emulate? You know, I, I always get hung up on Charles Manson because I think if you were to ask the average American on their street if Charles Manson was a serial killer, I'm going to say that probably 90% are going to say yes. And that's because in our cultural zeitgeist, he is presented as being the serial killer when he actually didn't kill anybody. His followers killed people, you know, he, <laughs> and whether or not he was, you know, uh, lucid enough to be able to give that instruction to begin with is also up for debate. But at the end of the day, is he actually a serial killer then? I think it's not for us to create this ironclad definition and figure out like who goes in the box or who goes out of the box. I think that most linguists would tell you that that's the wrong way to define any word. The way that you define a word is you have to map out all of its linguistic uses because language at the end of the day is about mutual understanding. So by mapping out those uses, then you create a little, a little cloud if you will over all those uses and that's how you define a word right i know this meredith because you're <laughs> actually, a linguist <laughs> so my first on-campus job at the university of chicago i worked on the assyrian language dictionary out of the oriental institute i did not know that that is very yes. cool and my job was to catalog each and every usage of you know, an Assyrian word that was found on a cuneiform tablet. Wow. Okay? And so it's crazy because this is, it's like one of those reasons why like, yes, it is good that you go to a university that has a lot of different opportunities for you because, you know, never in a million years would I ever have thought that I'd be working on a, on a dictionary like that. And it's funny how that skill set has threaded itself through my life and how just that practice of being like, okay, I have to catalog each and every usage of this word, even though it was super boring doing it. It really kind of helped me understand conceptually how we as a culture end up coding things. So to me, we need to look at how do people understand serial killer and then use that as the basis for our understanding. Not necessarily asking a bunch of, you know, like dumb fuck experts in a holiday inn by the airport, right? Like, <laughs> What, what do you think serial killer is? And, you know, basically synthesizing those different answers. Right. That is really interesting. I had not thought of it like that at all. <laughs> Very cool. So let's just say that for the purposes of this podcast, serial killer means any person who kills or aids in the killing of one or more persons where the resulting aftermath is then reimagined and slash or retold in society as a contemporary moralistic fable of good versus evil. How does that sound? I love this definition. I think it is very much, um, it screams I graduated from the University of Chicago with a philosophy major uh, <laughs> or concentration as we call them. But mm -hmm. I, I, I love it because I think it really encapsulates what socially and culturally, we mean when we talk about a serial killer, because, you know, if you kill three people in the forest and no one is around, does it make a sound, right? If no one ever finds out about those deaths, about those, you know, murders, are you actually a serial killer? 
And I think that that's an interesting philosophical question to ask ourselves because I think that what really makes the serial killer is the reimagining and retelling of it, which is essential to the cultural construct of what we collectively determine a serial killer to be because serial killers serve an important purpose in that they are our contemporary boogeymen. There is a reason why Dahmer doesn't die, right? (laughs) The fact that people talk about Dahmer to this very day, but he's a boogeyman. We, We have created a golem out of a man. We have basically taken this person who was flesh and bone and created this kind of demigod-esque kind of status for him in that he is being reimagined. And who he is in the collective consciousness is not actually who he actually was. Just as a quick aside, Dahmer himself was not as obsessed with eating people as people want to make him out to be. The fact that we have glommed onto that as being the central aspect of him says more about us actually than it does about Dahmer himself. So it, it's important that we realize that as boogeymen, they are here to give us a kind of mark or a notch as to what separates good from evil. And using that definition, which I think makes so much more sense because at the end of the day, what isn't a social construct? We can present the case of Patricia Colombo and Frank DeLuca, who, yes, they killed three people. So, you know, check off that <laughs> that requirement, right? The idea of the cooling off period is where we go a little bit off kilter with them. But at the end of the day, I think it's still safe for us to talk about them as serial killers because they left an indelible bloodstain on teenage female rebellion and (laughs) spoiler alert german shepherd ownership uh that in and of itself would become a cultural and social phenomenon because they would become an example that millions of chicago families are going to be taking into account and will end up even if not directly inspiring but indirectly inspiring other similar murders across the globe So let's get into it and set the scene. Yeah. Suburban Chicago has been memorialized in John Hughes films like 16 Candles, Mm -hmm. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Pretty in Pink, just to name a couple of them. Yeah. If you haven't seen any of these movies, think of large single-family homes resting on tree-lined roads where middle-class families raise sheltered children who, as teenagers, struggle to understand the more complex problems and emotions that come with adulthood. These movies have come to define American post-sexual revolution adolescence. In John Hughes's world, adolescents are good kids. Mm-hmm. Even the troublemakers are wholesome. <laughs> yeah. So these movies allow the teens to learn the hard lessons that come with adolescence, and then they come out stronger and better in the end. It's fairly formulaic. It's always a feel-good experience. Even if you don't know that John Hughes set almost all of his films in suburban Chicago. A fictional suburb named Shermer, Illinois, to be specific. Yeah. If you are trying to construct in your head a visual picture of what 1980s teenage adolescence was, you are going to subconsciously, most likely, be referencing a John Hughes film. 
because they were so culturally important. So I actually recently rewatched Pretty in Pink to prepare for this. And sidebar, I do not understand why people like that movie. But I'm also not a teenage girl. So <laughs> Meredith, have you seen it? Or can you give us any insight on why that particular movie is so popular? Yes and yes. <laughs> in transparency, Pretty in Pink is not my favorite of mm-hmm. the John Hughes movies. But I have seen it a few times. And it's popular because it deals with the popular themes of feeling like an outsider and finding your place in high school social structures. Mm-hmm. A teenage girl named Andy comes from a blue-collar family and goes to high school with a lot of wealthy kids. So it's a mixed socioeconomic group. Yeah. Her best friend, Ducky, has a crush on her, but she's oblivious to it. So that's played mm-hmm. for comedy. Ducky is the best character in the movie. <laughs> Drama and angst ensues, and in the end, Andy finds romance with a wealthy student named Blaine, played by James Spader. And the fun fact about this movie is that Andy, who's played by Molly Ringwald, and Ducky originally ended up together, but that ending was rejected by test audiences. So they had to reshoot the ending so that Andy and Blaine got together at the end. The fact that they created the original ending with Andy and Ducky getting together makes you realize that these are the epitome of, quote unquote, nice guys who think that by being the nerdy, well-intentioned guy, that you are somehow entitled to the pretty girl at the end of the movie. And what I think is so hilarious about that fun fact is that they were shocked that test audiences would reject that idea. Like, it was it was legitimately a huge surprise to them. So much so that the guy who ends up playing Blaine, he had to be re-brought in and they had to put a wig on him because he'd already been working on another movie. And he had already, he'd, he'd already oh, wow, shaved his yeah. head, right? Because they were so just like, of course, you know, the pretty girl is going to look over... <laughs> At the, you know, like, dorky kid and be like, yeah, I'm supposed to be with you. That aside, I first saw this in the 1980s. I was a kid and my aunt, who is probably 10 years older than me, right? Because, you know, again, you know, within parentheses, I'm Mexican, right? So (laughs) I have aunts and uncles who are not that much older than me, right? Um, But she was obviously obsessed with the movie. It was a cultural phenomenon at the time. And re-watching it, I think it was the first time that I noticed that there are absolutely no black or brown people in this movie. Which I always knew that there weren't a lot of people of color in John Hughes movies. But when I watched it, it was like watching an early episode of Friends, right? Because there are absolutely no black or brown people at all. And it made me also reflect on the fact that we're supposedly in Chicago. <laughs> Chicago land, a wealthy A wealthy suburb. suburb, but still, you know what I'm saying? Like, like even, even in the wealthiest suburbs, you're going to have, you know, like, you're going to have some color in there. And there's actually a lot of black artists who are used for the soundtrack itself. Yes. But yeah. no black people, right? And this is during a time where... In Chicago, the city of Chicago itself was 40% black in the 1980s. So the fact that there were no black people at all was 
insane to me. But then I realized Molly Ringwald is the diversity in this movie because her and Ducky are not quote unquote rich kids. And there's something so asinine about that. You know, she is symbolizing this idea of being disenfranchised because she is not as wealthy as the other white kids in the movie. But it's also effective because at the end of the day, this is the reason why so many people connected with the movie. They felt like they were underdogs, too, in that same way, you know. And this is the thing, too. She's not really poor. (laughs) You watch the movie and it's like, you know, she's not coded as poor, poor. She's coded as working class. Even though her family is working class, she's not poor. She still is living in the suburbs. And this made me think of Patty Colombo because we're going to get into this, I know, but she's basically Molly Ringwald's character, okay? She is pretty pink if Molly Ringwald had had latent homicidal tendencies, right? She's living in the suburbs, sure, but her family has to work for their money. And as we're going to kind of unpack with her, This is something that kind of stays within her, this kind of feeling that she should be having more. Unfortunately, the conditions that breed and attract violent killers to the city of Chicago are also present in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. This is no surprise because the suburbs are birthed from the city and settled by former city dwellers. That's why we call the whole metro area Chicago land. We are inextricably linked. Yeah. The history of the Colombo family is a really excellent illustration of this relationship. So the story that we're telling starts in the 1950s when newlyweds Frank and Mary Colombo married and began their family at Ohio and Wood Streets on the city's near west side. Mm-hmm. In those early years, they did not realize that their daughter was being molested by one of their close friends and that the abuse started when she was just six years old. Yeah, I think that one of the things that's interesting about this and the streets especially, because Ohio and Wood now is the medical district, right? And there is no remnant of what at that time was the largest Italian-American community in Chicago. And I think that the only thing that's left of that community there is really the Ferrera Bakery Company, which if you are in Chicago, you should definitely try it out. Because Ferrera is also the name of our candy company, which produces lemon heads. And the people who own this bakery are actually related to that candy dynasty in Chicago. That is really cool. (laughs) Today I learned. But back to these guys, I mean, they, they are moving from, as their last name probably gives away, right? They are moving away from a Italian American enclave and they're going to the suburbs. And Meredith, I love the fact that you reminded us the people who live in the suburbs come from the city. 
it's so funny how people in the suburbs like to think of themselves as being separate from the city, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we're going to leave behind all of that, all those problems. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and we're, we're going to have, like, there are, just by the fact that we have a garage now that with a, with an mm-hmm. entrance to the street, that's going to somehow solve all these sociocultural issues. No, dipshits, you are bringing with you all of your baggage yeah. from the fucking city, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have interacted with many people who have moved to the city or are just visiting, and they ask, where's the Chicago accent? Because they're familiar with depictions of Chicagoans on TV and in the movies. And the answer is, the accent is in the suburbs. Yeah. People who have moved to the city and they're working in the, the downtown area... That's just, you get all sorts of languages down there. And if you're speaking English, it's usually just going to be like the um, kind of generic Midwestern accent, if you get yeah. anything at all, right? Because there's people from the East Coast, West Coast, everybody is working downtown. But where the accent developed was blue collar Chicagoans. Yep. And those are the Chicagoans who left and populated yep. the suburbs. Yeah. They come back for ball games. And you can hear it on game days. <laughs> if you really want to hear a Chicago accent, you need to go to a game day. Don't buy the expensive seats, all right? You got to go sit in the bleat, like, you know, all the way up there, them, them $15, $20 tickets, right? <laughs> and that's where you're going to hear people be like, yeah, we're there on 40 Tree Street. You know, like that. that's, that's where the Chicago accent lives, yeah. in the cheap seats at Sox games. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No lies detected. (laughs) Yeah. Some of the folks who brought that accent to Elk Grove Village are the Columbos. Yep. They purchased that home in, I think, 1969. Mm -hmm. And they did it because they were white and all of their white neighbors were also doing that. And Jonathan, you might ask, why? Why am I bringing race into this? (laughs) Hey, Meredith, I never have to ask you why you're bringing race into this because I don't I don't think there's any city in America that is so defined by race. And I know that, that, that that's a hot take. It's just it's so salient even to this very day and just mm-hmm. how Chicago is organized. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it really is. So the reason I'm bringing that up is um, Chicago's restrictive housing covenants Mm -hmm. were dismantled, I think, in 1966. And what that Mm. means is that Black people were now able to access housing outside of the so-called Black Belt. Mm -hmm. And that's like a whole like podcast series of history. Um, If you really want to get into it, I recommend the book called The South Side by Natalie Moore. It really lays it out in an easy-to-understand manner and how it impacts the city to this day. But... Mm -hmm. That's not the subject of this podcast. We're mentioning it because mm-hmm. the n- character of the near west side was changing. And what that means when you see that phrase or hear that phrase, <laughs> that means that black people were moving in. <laughs> okay. Yes. And yes. so the white folks were like, oh, the neighborhood's going downhill. Mm-hmm. And they flee to the suburbs. So that was called white flight. Yeah. Neighborhood changing, it's not the same anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, uh, property values going down. Uh, all of these are sh- Chicago shorthand for saying that a group of people that we don't like 
is moving into our enclave, yeah. right? And I think that you cannot tell this story without highlighting the fact that the Columbos are part of that migration. They're part of that white migration, leaving the city for what they think is going to be a more idyllic place. Right. And I was refreshing my memory on this case um, in reading Love's Blood by Clark Howard. And his phrase, Clark Howard's phrase for what was happening was, the neighborhood was deteriorating. Oh. Right? <laughs> Man. We, yeah. Someone needs to come up with a list yeah. of every aphorism used that, you know, not it's not even subtle, right? No. Um, but that just encapsulates that idea of white people excusing their behavior. You and I are both from the Southwest side, which I yeah. think has a lot of, um, there have been, we've lived through this. We've lived through this. And th this is not, even though we're talking about something that happened in the 1960s, this continues till today. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I remember we were one of the first Latino families in an Eastern European neighborhood. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to just give one quick anecdote. Okay. okay. <laughs> that, which is that our next door neighbor was this old Polish guy. Yeah. Okay. His wife had died. Sad. Um, and when his wife died, he ended up dating a lot of really young Polish women that were probably like in their like 20s or 30s. And sometimes they would come over to our house and knock on our door to see if we had seen him because they were looking for him. I remember like a couple times, you know, like these crazy Polish ladies who looked like they were like had a couple in them already were like, you know, like, where is you know, whatever his name was. I'm, I'm going to keep it all confidential here. Right. Yeah. And I remember I went over to his house one day and I was like, hey, just to let you know, you know, this woman was looking for you. And, you know, I told her I didn't tell her anything. I just mm -hmm. want you to know. So he looked at me. He was like. You are a Mexican, but you are a good boy. <laughs> it's like one of those uh, deeply seated yeah. kind of statements that, you know, sometimes I just look at myself in the mirror and I hear the ghost of his voice mm -hmm. kind of just whispering, you are Mexican, but you are a good boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His intent was really to... Uh, was really to give me a compliment, yeah, right? Was, like that, yep. that, 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 there was no malice in that. You know what I'm saying? Nope. But, but it, 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 it lays out a whole <laughs> other set of beliefs that it, you know. <laughs> but the Columbos, that this is exactly what they are trying to flee as well, right? They're trying to flee the changing neighborhood, which at yep. that point in the 1970s would have been turning from a predominantly Italian American neighborhood to a predominantly black neighborhood mm -hmm. because chronologically speaking, this is during the time when, you know, a lot of those restrictions that were enforced by the state are being relaxed yeah. and allowing black Americans to finally live where they want to live in the city. Yeah. Well, honestly, escape the very uh, crowded, restrictive area that they've yep. been forced to live in before. Exactly. And for this podcast, that's where we're going to leave that topic. But again, highly recommend reading The South Side by Natalie Moore to dive deeper into the topic. Um, she does it justice in a way that Jonathan and I cannot. 
Okay, so now we have moved to Elk Grove Village. This is a suburb located just west of O'Hare Airport. And O'Hare mm-hmm. was new at that time. So yeah. everything's new. It's it's mm-hmm. all exciting. And everybody mm-hmm. who moved to like their block were middle-aged couples with kids. Mm-hmm. So they kind of fit in again and they found their place and they're happy. Now, despite having made this move of several miles, you have to drive. I, I'm sure mm-hmm. the, yeah, it's it's definitely a driving commute. Uh, Frank Colombo continued to work at his city job, which was at a Western Auto Parts franchise in Canaryville. Mm. And the exact address, we're going to share this because it's it's an empty lot right now. <laughs> But the address was 525 West 47th Street. Yeah. Okay. His income supported that family. So it's him, his wife, Mary, and their two kids. So it's Patty and Michael. All right. And Michael's six years younger than Patty. So that's our setup. Okay. It's picture perfect. But beneath the John Hughes exterior image, the abuse that Patty had endured as a very young child started to cause major problems just as she started to try to date. So she's Mm -hmm. in her young teen years, and it's all kind of coming up again. Jonathan, given what we know about the abuse and how Patty behaved, would you say that there were clear indications that something was deeply wrong? Because I'm having a lot of problems believing that her parents thought everything was fine. I mean, even in the fact that Frank Colombo the fact that he is driving all the way from Elk Grove Village yeah. to Canaryville, okay, which is over an hour-long drive each way, mm-hmm. says something about these parents. Says something about what they thought moving to the suburbs was going to do for their children. And it is evident, not because of personal knowledge of the Columbos, but just knowing Chicago families, this screams a family that thought... We are going to solve everything. This is the magic pill by just moving the family out of the city because they don't want to take a hard look at themselves and realize that the dynamics that we have in our family, there is something wrong. And it is no surprise that Patty Colombo, once she starts entering into that age where she is able to make her own decisions as to who she is going to start developing sexually with, that she is going to have problems because of the sexual abuse that she endured. It is also very evident that this family is not doing anything to address that, okay? That they are going to pretend that, well, if we just pretend it's not here, it's just going to magically go away. But she is not only a girl who is transitioning into a completely different developmental stage, you know, but she's also coming from the city and now living in the suburbs. She is now living in a world where everything needs to be picture perfect. You know, I went to a suburban high school for a couple of years. And it was the worst experience in my entire life. People always think that the narrative should be, oh, you must have loved going to school in the suburbs because going to the school in the city must have been so hard. For them, it's just a question of resources. Oh, in- I yeah, was wondering. Because I, like, I think if you went to high school in the city, you kind of also know, too, that the way they picture it is not the way that it actually is. 
And mm-hmm. I would definitely flip that understanding. Going to high school in the city was so much healthier than going to high school in the suburbs. Going to high school in the suburbs, yeah, you know, I remember what freshman sophomore year I would watch high school movies and not understand why the movies looked like that, right? Or why the kids were so yeah. mean? Because, mm-hmm. you know, high school in the city, yeah, people are you know, teenagers in general are just assholes. But you have too much going on in your life to direct all of that teenage angst at one person, okay? In the suburbs, like, that's sport. That is what people do. That whole popular kids run the school. I think going to school in the city, you don't necessarily have popular kids in the same way that you have popular kids in the suburbs. Yeah, I went to the same high school four years. Nobody was popular. Because there's just so much going on. And you might have popular kids in certain groups, right? But it's not centralized to the point where you can pinpoint four individuals who are the most popular kids in the school you know so that's why when i ended up going to school in the suburbs i was flabbergasted that all of a sudden i was like wait who the fuck are you like why why am i supposed to be nice to you like it just didn't make any sense when i put myself in patty's shoes as being a teenage girl who is now being forced to live in a new environment to go to high school in the suburbs you know She is struggling. She has to be struggling inside to keep up appearances because in the suburbs, that's really what it's all about, right? White picket fences. You know, you need to make sure that you are holding up the image and birth order here. She's the first child. There's going to be a lot of pressure on her to maintain, you know, what the family wants to project to society as being who they are. I can only imagine what that is as as a as a teenage girl, you know. Like obviously, like I'm I'm I'm, I'm a man, I'm I'm a gay man, you know. Like so, I don't know what that experience would have been like. But it just seems whenever I read about this story and Patty's family, it seems like there was such a fundamental disconnect, and that the parents really just wanted to ignore everything. And my heart. Like, Meredith, this is a constant theme in this podcast. I always, sometimes, there are moments where I'm just like, why are you overly empathizing with a serial killer? But I do, I feel for Patty because I feel like this must have been really fucking difficult to just get up every day and go to school and pretend everything is fine. Like, this yeah. is, this is hunky fucking dory and ignoring, yeah. you know, this, this really traumatic thing, which is being sexually abused by a family friend over the course of years. There was no help for her, mm-hmm. right? So she's entering her teen years. She's struggling to connect to boys her own age. And she gets a job when she's 15 at a lunch counter that was connected to the local Walgreens. Yeah. So so we've got this little kind of like tinderbox of a person now out in the world for the first time, mm-hmm. exposed to a variety of I adults. Know. Yeah. And without any sort of protection, Mm -hmm. right? So obviously her parents aren't protecting her, and she has been raised with this vulnerability Mm -hmm. as a result of the abuse. So she doesn't even have, like, natural psychological protections. Nope. And I'm sure that you have seen and met people like this, because I certainly have. Like many childhood victims of sex abuse, her trauma shines like a beacon. Yeah, to, like, the shittiest moths in the world, which are predators. Yeah, it's like a neon sign for predators. And lo and behold, 
Walgreens next door employs one of these predators, and his name is Frank DeLuca. Yeah. So this guy is a charming sexual predator who managed the Walgreens next to the lunch counter. Mm -hmm. Because we've got two Franks, Mm -hmm. we're going to do a little bit of separation uh, (laughs) of the names. So Patty's dad is Frank Colombo, and Mm -hmm. Patty's boyfriend is Frank DeLuca. Yeah. And I'm going to try and keep things clear by referring to DeLuca just by his last name. I I think that's that's the healthy approach. Also because your husband is named Frank. (laughs) Right, exactly. It's just a lot of Franks going on here. Yeah. But, I mean, like, it kind of gets to the point where, like, you know, it's not fair if I'm saying Patty and then DeLuca and blah, blah, blah. It, it, we're really, we're doing this for clarity's yeah, sake. Yeah, yeah, Okay, so DeLuca, right? Like Patty, he had been born and raised on the near west side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also 18 years older than she was. He mm-hmm. put himself through pharmacy school and worked his way up to, like, managing the Walgreens. And he was married with five Children. Yeah. Okay, so he's in his early 30s, has a bunch of kids. Yeah. Pharmacist, Mm -hmm. right, uh, abuses his access to the pharmacy Mm -hmm. and has a network of swingers. Yeah. Not the dancers. (laughs) Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Because had this just been a dance competition gone awry, this would have been such a healthier ending to the story. A much better 80s movie. He also had a talent for seducing and manipulating women into sexual affairs with himself, with his friends. Mm -hmm. Um, And occasionally, we're going to get into this in a future episode, uh, dogs. Okay? But back to Patty. She's 15 and has no idea what's about to hit her. To Patty, DeLuca looks like the perfect Italian boy that she can bring home to her meet Mm. her father. Mm-hmm. She's looking at this guy as marriage potential. Yeah. She doesn't know about his wife and kids. It's a nightmare. Because she is a teenager. And I think that this is where racism and sexual selection end up getting really intertwined. Because in a racist system, where socially, being white has more cultural currency, she is going to privilege certain members within the community as being her ideal mate. And what she loves about DeLuca is not who he is, but how he looks to other people. And this is in line with what she has learned from her fucking family. It doesn't matter what's underneath. All that matters is what's on the outside. What is what is that veneer? As long as it has a veneer on it, we're good. I love the fact that you brought up the fact that he is also from the west side of Chicago. I think there is a delicious irony And the fact that you have this mass exodus of people who are all telling themselves, oh, we're leaving all the problems back in the city with all those brown and black folk. And completely ignoring the fact that, no, like, we are the problem. When you are the problem yourself, you're going to go somewhere else. You're going to find the same fucking issue. This is what I tell a lot of people in their 30s because, you know, that's, that's where we are generationally. I have those heart-to-hearts with friends of mine who are like, you know what, I'm sick of this. I'm just going to go move to another city. And I'm like, "Mm, if you move to another city, are you really curing anything? No, because you're still going to be you. 
And this is yeah. exactly what happened with the Italian American community. They all thought, okay, let's run away from the city and we're going to live in a place where there are no more problems. Y'all are the motherfucking problems, right? Yeah. And the problems that you brought with you are going to root themselves there and they're going to blossom shit flowers, which is exactly what happened here. And this is heartbreaking because you can practically see the hearts in Patty's eyes at this point in the story because she looks at this man and she's just like, you are going to get me out of this situation. Like, I feel alone. And being with you makes me feel safe. But that's the problem with people who do not work through their trauma is that they don't realize that comfort is typically rooted in that same trauma. Because for Mm. you, comfort is all about replicating the same dynamics that brought you that trauma to begin with. Yeah. So she is being played like a fucking fiddle by DeLuca, okay? Mm -hmm. Who is so practiced in this because he's done this numerous times. And he's getting off just on the power that he's able to exert over this young girl. Did you ever watch Moonstruck? Oh, gosh. Maybe when I was a kid. <laughs> okay. Again, I have a lot of cultural references from the 80s because I was raised by a bunch of teenagers in the 80s. But Moonstruck is one of my favorite movies. Um, Olympia Dukakis does a great job in that movie. And she asks this question where she's like, why do men cheat? And <laughs> she finally answers her own question. And she's like, it's because they're afraid of death. They don't want to die. The idea is that they are going to constantly cheat because they have this innate fear of death. And I think there's something really perfect about that. Because in this situation, DeLuca looks at this teenage girl. It's not about the sex for him. It's about the power he has over this young girl that for him makes him feel like he is going to live a little bit longer. Like his importance is going to last a little bit longer. That's why, sadly... DeLuca is working his psychotic charm on Patty. Obviously, mm-hmm. it is working. Shortly after her 16th birthday, DeLuca and Patty start to become sexual partners. And where does Frank DeLuca take Patty? He takes her to the Brer Rabbit Motel in Villa Park, Illinois, which is a very familiar location to us, Meredith. And can you remind us why? Yeah. We talked about the Brer Rabbit Motel in season one in episode seven and eight. And this is the place where the remains of Linda Sutton were found in 1981, just hours after she was kidnapped and murdered by the Ripper crew. Yeah. So even now, it's an out of the way place, uh, kind of run down a little bit. These are rooms to rent when you are in need of a roof over your head. It Mm -hmm. is not a place to bring somebody that you're trying to impress. This is not date night. This Mm -hmm. is not, we're having an illicit affair and, you know, our spouses don't know. So let's just like go to this nice place. That's not it. No. That is not it. No. Um, And when you and I visited, (laughs) um, it it almost looked abandoned, but it wasn't. But people were there. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, people were, were there. Yeah. And Uh, I think we've read online that you can still get a room there, but it looks like it's the type of place that you rent the rooms by the week or the month. Oh, like a longer term. Yeah. 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 
That makes sense. And you're probably not in a really good financial position. This is end of the road kind of stuff. Yeah, that is the situation of the the motel today in 2023, or actually we visited at the end of 2022. Mm-hmm. But back in, I think we're, we're talking about early 70s right now, it was even more remote. Yeah. Villa Park was then and still remains like a little bit uh, of a place you just don't want to go. It's not the fancy place. It's not the classy place. It's a place that you end up in. Yeah. And, you know, this should have been a clue to Patty that DeLuca did not really value her. You know, I, I'm always reminded of that uh, that TikTok video where the dad is taking his daughter out for like a really good meal. And it's like, this is so that she's not impressed by, you know, chicken nuggets and, you know, a big gulp. And there, there's something to be said about that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, had Patty possessed the analytical ability to be able to realize, wow, this dude is taking me to a motel and statutorily raping me basically right in a place that is predominantly for vagrants and for sex work okay this is not pretty and pink this is not blame okay i think in her mind of course she's looking at this like wow like this is a guy who is making a bunch of money and Mm -hmm. you know i am this girl from this working class family and this is this is my ability to move up in the world yeah it's her chance it's her chance and those pink-colored glasses that she – those rose-colored glasses, as I say, sorry. Those rose-colored glasses that she's wearing are, you know, ignoring the cockroaches in the bathroom. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And Patty walks right into that motel with rose-tinted naivete, right? And DeLuca took advantage of that to mold her into his ideal sexual partner. And I, I, we need to we need to unpack that real quick too, because this is one of the reasons why older men like to have younger sexual partners, because younger sexual partners don't know what they like, they don't know about their bodies yet. It's your ability to be able to take advantage of that, and it, I think it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of gay men and straight women alike are confused by the obsession that you know, straight men have with younger women. This kind of yeah. like this, this idea of like, you know, quote unquote, barely legal. Oh, you know? right. Because like every gay man out there, like that's the reason why like the whole daddy thing is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have a lot more daddy kink in the mm-hmm. gay community than you do, you know, barely legal kink, right? Because the idea is like, right. why would I want, like, why would you want to be with someone who doesn't even know what they're doing yet? You know what I'm saying? Like, right. But. For a sick fuck like Frank DeLuca, he's not looking for a sexual partner. He's Mm -hmm. looking for a sexual victim that he can mold to his own likes. Yeah, exactly. Including indulging in his kinks, which include swinging with multiple partners. Because I think what he's getting off on is the degradation, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's the fact that she is the 16-year-old girl. And he, obviously he hates women. I, I don't have to sit down and have a fucking conversation with him to not to realize he hates women. Okay. There is something that he gets off on by taking this teenage girl and making her do despicable things. And although Patricia was reluctant at first, she was so infatuated with DeLuca, who was so good at manipulating. Right? Yeah. 
that soon after he had her hooked on Valium, because again, he's a pharmacist. He has access mm-hmm. to all this shit. And yep. other tranquilizers that DeLuca is stealing from the pharmacy, okay, yep. to blur the lines for her. Because once she yep. blurs those lines, that's going to be her it, – it's what's enabling her to make that jump into this sexual depravity. And yeah. the drugs help keep Patty compliant even when asked to perform sexual acts outside of her comfort zone because they're not for her. It's all right. for him. He's telling her it's normal, and she's like, uh, I'm not sure. And he's like, pop another Valium. Yep. It's normal. Just do it. You know, and she's in love, so she wants to make him happy. So they <sighs> carried on like this together for years. And later in later interviews, Patty would say that she believed that DeLuca had been helping to prepare her for an eventual marriage mm. to him. I, yeah, it's gross. So what that says is that at the time, she had no idea that this was just another round of abuse. And just to say again, because it's relevant right now, she was still completely ignorant of Jaluka's wife and five kids. It never occurs to her. Why would it? it? You know? Right. right. That, like, uh, Meredith, I, 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 I've never been a young teenage girl in love. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I love you. You didn't hear- miss anything. <laughs> I think as a young gay man who was in love with, you know, some people who were not really mm-hmm. healthy for me, I think, or what I think I can empathize with is this, you are willing to do a lot for this other person because you don't understand the severity of what you're doing, right? You don't understand yeah. the long-term consequences right. of it because none of it is real for you yet. Your your feelings are heightened in a way that they will never be again right because adolescent hormones are a drug unto themselves mm-hmm. you I, I i think back to my you know you know when i was a teenager and i was first like having sex with people mm-hmm. you know a lot of the things that i did were very much because i wanted to look like i knew what i was doing and I think in a similar way to, I think, a lot of straight women, you know, there there's not a lot of media, at least back then, right? Because I'm, I'm aging yeah. myself here. This is pre-internet, right? You know, we don't have those examples for us as to right. what that sexual relationship looks like because all sexual media is given to us from the perspective of straight men. Mm-hmm. That is how we understand sex is through mm-hmm. st- a straight male perspective. So yeah, how- especially when we were growing up. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I think now maybe it's a little bit better. Access to media, access to a greater uh, variety of storytelling is unparalleled in yeah. our recent history right now. Yeah. So I have a lot of um, optimism for kids who are just like hitting that hormone level right now, mm-hmm. but it's not a blanket level of access, right? right. You know, every family is different. Every person is different. But, but your point stands. We, we just didn't know. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like we didn't know what, what, what the sexual act was even supposed to look like in a right. way that was mutually gratifying. Right. All you know is your fucking, you know, like American Pie movies, right? And like, Mm-hmm. Well, it's supposed to feel good and you're supposed to do it. And at the end of the day, you're supposed to make the main character happy. 
I, I feel like I can really sympathize with that emotion of yeah. you don't know your body yet. You don't know anything. Right. And this person who you look up to, who society, who your family has brought you up to look up to because he's another Italian-American from your neighborhood right. is telling you to do this and you're just going along with it, right? There's this movie that I want to mention. I'm looking up the name of it right now. It was a Julia Roberts movie in the 90s, and I had the benefit of an older sister who, mm-hmm. she's eight years older, so that's significant when, yeah. you know, I was eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? We were watching this movie called Sleeping with the Enemy. Have you oh! seen it? Oh! Classic, of course, yes. Yeah, classic movie. Yeah. That movie came out in 1991. Okay. Okay, so I was nine years old. My sister is like 16, 17. So you can imagine like a nine-year-old, higher level thinking <laughs> hasn't quite turned on yet. And especially but for that wa- movie, yeah. Yeah, but we're watching the movie. Yeah. And she like took care to like pop. It was on VHS. So we must have actually been watching it in 92 or 93. Mm-hmm. Scratch my age, but... So she took care to pause at a specific scene where it's like at the beginning, it's establishing Mm -hmm. the abusive relationship and they're having sex. And Julia Roberts's character, uh, her face looks like she's enjoying it only when the husband is looking at her. And right. And so my sister, it is, it is. And my sister like felt it very important to pause, rewind and go slowly through that scene. And she was like, look, do you notice that she's only having a good time when he's looking at her? It would have gone over my head had she not done that. Patty Colombo doesn't have an older sister to say, hey, here's an example, like one of the rare examples that might have existed when Patty was of the right age, to say, like, this is not normal, and here's an example of a bad situation and how to recognize it. Thank God I for think she needed sisters. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, slow clap for your fucking sister, too. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like, is that... I wish more people understood that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, yeah. I've had a lot of conversations with younger gay guys even, right? Where I'm like... Yeah. Do not emulate porn in you understanding yourself as a sexual being. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people end up getting lost in that and don't realize how much of these isms in our society are embedded in these media representations, even the pornographic ones. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So th- the fact that your sister did that is beautiful because, yeah, like th- th- that's what most people end up thinking is that their ability to be to have sexual gratification is not in their own sexual gratification, but in giving that sexual gratification to traditionally a cisgender male. Right. Hoy. Okay. <laughs> okay. We're heading into the home stretch of episode one. Patty and DeLuca, they are having sex, a lot of sex. Mm-hmm. And Patty doesn't know about DeLuca's wife and kids. Patty's parents don't know about DeLuca. They just mm-hmm. think that she's working at the Walgreens lunch counter. That's a stasis type of situation. And now something's going to happen to blow it all up. Mm-hmm. A new coworker who works at like a different Walgreens gets transferred to the Elk Grove Walgreens. Mm. This woman, turns out, she used to sleep with Frank DeLuca. Mm-hmm. With full knowledge of the wife and kids and the swinging lifestyle, like mm-hmm. that, she was she was in that world. She starts working at Elk Grove Walgreens, and then right away she reads the room. She's like, "Okay, well, Patty and Deluca are fucking. Yep. Everybody knows it. Patty doesn't think everybody knows it. Everybody <laughs> knows it." 
because that's the shining beacon of abuse again, right? Is that uh-huh. she has the blinders on. And it turns out that everyone working at that Walgreens already knew, like you said, that DeLuca and Patty are fucking. It's just like every pathetic, obvious workplace romance you've ever witnessed. It makes me think of, you know, like The Office, where like, it's like everyone's like, oh yeah, no one knows. Everyone fucking knows, right? Everyone knows. Everyone, everyone can read the fucking tea leaves here. You know, it's just because Patty's so inexperienced. You know, I think, oh, I mean, doing this research again. Meredith, it just yeah. made me realize she's just a fucking kid. Yeah, she yes. She needs a lot of help. Oh. And things haven't really gone off the rails yet. <laughs> no, you know, we haven't even gotten to the bur- you know what I'm saying? Yeah. We haven't even gotten to the really bad part yet, okay? Yeah. This is still yeah. this is still the middle of it. So this new coworker, she mistakenly assumes that Patty also knew then about DeLuca's family. Because for her, there are no secrets. And another thing, too, is that we also realized because of this this woman, Patty's not special. This is the yeah. same thing that DeLuca's been doing over and over and over again. This is a bit of a, a, of a, of a tangent here, but it just happened in Mexico recently that oh. there is a big murder case right now in Mexico because mm-hmm. there was an older man in his 70s who killed a manager at a local supermarket um, oh. who was defending her workers. So this 70-year-old man used to come into the store and basically sexually harass all of her workers, okay? Mm-hmm. And she decides one day to just be like, you can't come in here anymore. You're making everyone mm-hmm. uncomfortable. He leaves, comes back with a gun, shoots and kills her. So right yeah. now, like, the, it, it, this is the big news story in Mexico. You know, it, it, it kind of plays into a lot of kind of the misogyny in Mexican culture, machismo, mm-hmm. et cetera, right? But I yeah. think a really important part of it that I was gleaning – from kind of reading the news reports and and just doing this research is the fact that he was doing this systematically to all the girls in this supermarket because for him, this is his barrel and he's going to shoot all the fish in it, right? Yeah. This is Mm -hmm. DeLuca in Walgreens. Mm -hmm. Like he is using the power that he has as the manager to impose himself on all of these women. So yeah. obviously this new coworker, she's she's already seen this before. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like she's seen the dance, she's done the dance. Exactly. So she's just gonna mention just by because she thinks everyone knows that DeLuca has a family. And yeah. Patty is devastated. Yes. She yes. it's like every dream she had ever had for herself is now just poof, evaporated. Years of her life. Yeah. And she yeah. thought she was going to marry this guy. Mm-hmm. She thought it was like monogamy heaven. Yep. All of a sudden, everything that she'd been working toward is flipped on its head. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that Patty failed to understand is that her father was going to flip his lid <laughs> about her dating, her teenage self yeah. dating a guy who was in his 30s. Mm-hmm. On top of that, not just dating bringing her to the seedy motel. Yep. Right. We're not even withstanding what he was doing to her in there. Just like she she was just like blissfully unaware. She was like, this guy's Italian. It's great. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it comes as a surprise to Patty when all of this comes to light. Frank Colombo, her father, punches DeLuca in the face and knocks out a couple of his teeth and says, don't ever come near my daughter again. Mm-hmm. And he threatens to kill him. This is a surprise to Patty. <laughs> it's a surprise because I think 
Have you ever read your journals or, or diary when you were a teenager? Do you have one? Uh, they're in the room with me now. I oh my god! Them. Okay, read them, please. I can't them. get rid of them because oh, what? Like, yeah, what know, if yeah. they like? Yeah, End but no, I have not read them. Okay, so I I I had a diary when I was yeah. you know younger because yes, I was a boy, but I was I'm, I'm a gay boy. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> nothing wrong with journaling i mean i read the shit that i wrote back then and like my my thought process you know and mm-hmm. it, maybe it's hollywood that's kind of corrupted our minds but the, when i look at the way that i saw things it was so like everything needs to turn out perfect in the end you know you see this with patty that this is not insincere on her part she is very sincere right. in her belief that frank deluca does not have a family and yeah. also that her family is going to love him she never would have done any of that had it not been to get to this place in her mind which yeah. was going to be i'm going to marry this motherfucker you know what i'm saying Happily ever after you, you know so i just i can't even yeah. fathom just how shitty she must have felt so it's not unsurprising that for her her father would have reacted badly because in her mind she's she's been laying down the groundwork for all of this to create the perfect story in the end she's gonna have this beautiful wedding and part of that is that her dad is gonna walk her down that fucking aisle yes something that we didn't go over in detail here is that her first boyfriend was a boy of her own age of Mm -hmm. uh polish ethnicity Mm -hmm. and it ended badly but normally Right. For teens. But okay. she doesn't know that, though. She doesn't know that that's she a normal that. way for a relationship to end. Right. She was devastated again because the boy like found another high school classmate to date. Okay. Yes. I don't mean to make light of it. Yes, it was devastating. However, how her father reacted to that was like hit her in the face hard enough to give her a black eye and mm-hmm. said, you don't need to be dating this, you know, pol- insert Polish slur here. Mm-hmm. You should find a nice Italian boy. Yeah. So in her mind, she did. Yeah. Dad is not innocent in this. And exactly. ev- even the fact that he punches him in the face, like, yeah, like, I think there's a part of us that watch The Sopranos and loves the idea of, you know, like an Italian dad, you know, like solving all his problems with violence. No, even that's problematic. The dad is part of the problem. Even in dealing with the aftermath of her only normal relationship with this Polish-American boy. He's coding it for her, right? Yeah. So that's like, don't do that. Do this. Do this. Yeah. And that's exactly what she does. She Mm -hmm. finds a good, what she thinks is a good Italian boy, right? Right. She just doesn't know any better. She doesn't know any better. This is why I think it's it's frustrating when you hear this story from a straight male perspective. Because the straight male perspective does not pick up on all of these nuances that are very much at play here. And so instead of helping Patty to leave DeLuca, like we said before, punching him in the face was not the right move. Okay? Because her dad's actions actually strengthened the twisted duo's connection. And what did Mm -hmm. it do? It gave them a common fucking enemy. Because Patty's looking like, oh yeah, like I I get where you're coming from because... He hit me in the face too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Like he a common experience. You know what I'm saying? Common yeah. experience equals common enemy. You and me against the world. And what DeLuca does next enforces that even more because mm-hmm. he actually leaves his wife and children to show his renewed commitment to Patty. And then her dreams are coming true because they start actually talking about marriage. 
So this is now turned from abused child, an abused teenager, to an entrenched bad relationship with a lot of anger directed at one person. Okay, and we've dis- discussed the anger against Frank Columbo specifically, and in the coming episodes, we'll talk about the anger towards Patty's mother as well. Mm. But the the core thing here is Patty is angry, hurt. She resents her father's actions. Mm-hmm. She resents how this whole thing kind of turned against her. Like, how dare her parents reject this relationship? How dare they reject her year's worth of work, mm-hmm. effort, trying to be the perfect daughter? Okay. Yeah, because we're going to go into what that work was. Yeah. But it's so crushing. It's so crushing. It is. And so she went through a lot of shit Mm -hmm. and all for nothing. And Mm -hmm. they're pissed off at her. And she's like, what the fuck? So there's a tension here between an adolescent person and their heightened anger response. Like, there's, there's no way, Jonathan, that you and I could ever get this angry again because we're too old. (laughs) Thank God. That's a blessing. Right? But I remember being this angry Mm -hmm. and I didn't even have as good of a reason as Patty to be this angry. There's just like you get an adolescent and they're just living their lives and something's going to set them off. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think we could all have a little bit of empathy there, but we're going to lose that empathy real quick because <laughs> actions are taken, okay? Yeah, but, but the, we're, now we're, we're laying down. We're, we're, we're not trying we're to... We're laying the foundation. We're laying, laying the foundation. We're not trying to justify what she's about to do, but we are trying to put ourselves into her shoes yeah. so that we can contextualize the shit sandwich that is about to be served. Yeah. Exactly. So we've got like an... She's like 18 or 19 mm-hmm. around this junction. Okay, mm-hmm. so... Some conflict at this age is normal, but Frank and Mary Colombo are at this moment in their lives failing to realize just how fucked up Patty is. Yeah. Okay. Officially, like the official story is that they never found out about the abuse. Yeah. I find that hard to believe. Exactly. But they're not here to say anything about it, unfortunately. So that's what we have to go on. Mm -hmm. And Patty, I think like we mentioned before, she's a tinderbox. (laughs) We've lit the match. Mm-hmm. The fuse is burning. And Frank and Mary are unaware. They're oblivious. They don't see the, the fuse burning. Yeah. They have no idea that she would rather kill them than give up on DeLuca. Because they themselves are living in their own delusional world. We just talked about Leopold and Loeb and how the sexual abuse alleged is, you know, alleged. Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And here we have a similar situation. I I think what for me lends more credence, you know, more preponderance that this might have actually happened is just where Patty is in her life. This is, again, no one's special. This is textbook, right? This is what happens to... You know, victims of sexual abuse who do not deal with that trauma in healthy <laughs> ways, right? They mm-hmm. find a Frank DeLuca. Frank DeLucas exist all over the fucking world. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's very difficult for me to logically conclude that their relationship could have occurred without some type of long-term sexual abuse happening. But I, I do think that it is important what you said. This was never confirmed, right? Yeah. And we don't know if it wasn't confirmed just because of toxic suburban white culture or mm-hmm. if it's because it didn't actually happen. So 
Like we said before, this is all setting us up for the carnage that lays ahead. And it's where we're going to pick up things next week. So here we are basically trying to put ourselves into Patty's shoes. I don't know about you, Meredith, but for me, this really helped contextualize who she was, which is a girl at, at a crossroads who has been victimized for the majority of her life, right? And I know that the way that the media treats her after everything happens is really unfortunate because she becomes a symbol for being a teenage brat. Going back to our John Hughes conversation, right? And all the actors who became famous because of his movies were referred to as the Brat Pack. This feeds into that narrative that kids are just brats. They, they, they have too much privilege. They have too much, too many resources, you know, and, and she fills in that void culturally as being this kind of, ditzy teenage girl who is completely unappreciative and she is basically just thinking about herself but i think this research really helps cement her as a person who is really traumatized she's in a hole and she doesn't know how to fix it and up to that point no one has substantially helped her get out of it because of their own vested interest in ignoring it because their whole cultural response to any type of quote-unquote bad thing is to ignore and to flee, which is what they did by leaving the west side of Chicago for Elk Grove Village. Mm-hmm. I mean, did this help you kind of also construct who Patty was? Being it a does. Form- it- <laughs> I, I just think because you were a teenage girl in Chicago, too. <laughs> But I never moved to the suburbs, right? right? So my high school experience was fine. I think my response to high school turned out to be very much like my response to the 40-hour work week. Mm -hmm. It's a slog. Nobody wants to do it. But hey, here we are. Yep. Just understanding what she went through as a kid gave me a lot of empathy for her and also like really made me feel my like luck of life Mm -hmm. where you know i did not have that kind of abuse in my childhood i Mm -hmm. was not a shining beacon to a predator Mm -hmm. like deluca i mean i knew girls in high school who were those beacons and i didn't understand what i was seeing yeah i didn't understand the choices that they were making i just knew that i could see that those were bad choices yeah had no ability to analyze it at the time so it really just like reminded me of like how incredibly lucky I was growing up when I did, and with the level of neglect that I had in Mm. in my childhood, which I don't think was unusual for uh, us elder millennials, but still lucky. I remember those girls in high school, yeah, right, not understanding. You know, it was kind of like, like what the fuck is happening? Like how how do you Mm -hmm. keep on finding these dudes? You don't see the world from that perspective of the sexual predator. Who, you know, they can sniff that shit out. And as soon as they realize that they are able to manipulate this person. They're right on them. They're right on them. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that I looked up actually just before we started recording, um, because I was looking at photos of Mm -hmm. Patty Colombo. It's like all of like arrest photos and Mm -hmm. perp walks and all of this stuff. And I realized, I was like, wait a minute. Is she a boomer? And she is. Yeah. Born in 57. Yep. This woman is of the boom, baby boom generation. Mm-hmm. And to your point of like us 80s and 90s kids were raised with neglect, like 
our parents are the boomer generation. Actually, yours might be Generation X because they were a little bit on she's, the younger she's side. She's like right on the cusp. On the cusp. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Elder X. <laughs> right? She's, a, she's an elder X, yes. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's that level of neglect that our parents' generation were modeled on. Yeah. Yeah. That have passed to us. And uh, I know that we don't have kids, but our peers mm-hmm. who have children mm-hmm. are breaking that model. Yeah. 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 You know, one of the things my sister, my sister who does have a child, right, Mm -hmm. told me, she was just kind of really shocked because she was like, I don't know why, you know, the people in our lives just didn't like spending time with us, right? Because adults, Mm. I think back then, just did not want to spend time with kids. You were kind of just relegated to your own kid world, right? Mm -hmm. And she's Mm -hmm. like, I love spending time with my daughter. And I thought that was really beautiful because I was like, that that makes so much sense. You know, like, I I, I do remember being a kid at at a family party and adults just being like, go go talk to their kids. You know, just don't mm-hmm. talk. Just I'm not here, right? Yeah, leave us alone. Leave yeah. us the fuck alone. You know, and th- yeah. that that was really the vibe. <laughs> growing well, up. here's here's the thing. I recognize that vibe, and I've got uh, a hypothesis about mm-hmm. it. I'm not gonna like go like hard and fast on like the dates and stuff, but mm-hmm. in general, like elder millennials were are the first ish generation to have reliable access to cheap and effective birth control Mm, yeah Yeah. and we started coming of age sexually at the height of the aids crisis Mm -hmm. and it was just drilled into everybody like condoms 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 you don't want to get sick Mm -hmm. so with that in mind my hunch is that like we really are the first generation to have a meaningful choice Mm -hmm. and my choice was to not have children. Your sister's choice was to have her daughter. Yeah. We may have been raised around a lot of people that had they really truly had that meaningful choice, that easy access. Yeah. Maybe there would not have been this level of neglect. It, it makes me think about a lot of just other collateral issues, right? Like yeah. mothers historically hating their daughters. And, you know, I think... A lot of that is is seeing themselves in their children when they were reluctant mothers themselves and yeah. didn't want to see themselves reflected back at them, right? Like through these newborn exactly. eyes, you know? Um, exactly. And I, I think a very glaring omission from the story of Patty Colombo is her mom. Mm-hmm. Because we know a lot about Patty's dad, okay? Yeah, we do. But we don't know almost anything about her mom. It's kind of like in in the law, right? (laughs) Like the absence (laughs) of a record is evidentiary, right? Like if something's Mm -hmm. missing, that's an issue. Here, we don't hear shit from the mom. And I think that that is not a accident. I think that this is is the reason why Patty was so vulnerable to someone like DeLuca, why she had no one to talk to about it. And it's the reason why we're going to get into this all next week where we pick up with how Patty and DeLuca plotted to kill her parents, mm-hmm. uh, their attempts to hire so-called hitmen <laughs> to actually do it, yep. and how what will ensue will rock the formerly squeaky clean image of Chicago's middle-class suburban landscape. Um, just to leave us off here, Meredith, I, I was reading a, a, an article recently about, about Frank DeLuca that was written mm-hmm. this year. And the mayor of Elk Grove Village was was quoted as saying, I remember this case well. This was when the suburbs lost their innocence. 
But we'll go into why that is so obnoxious mm-hmm. to say and what actually yeah. happened next week. So a uh, quick editorial note, we've caught up to the publishing yeah. schedule. So we'll do our best to hit it next week. But, uh, spoiler alert, I got a lot of stuff going on at work right now. So it might not be exactly on Thanks. time. Sorry, bye. sorry, sorry. Okay, thank you for listening. Bye bye. <laughs> Murderland Chicago, A Deep Dish of Death, was created and produced by us, Jonathan Sanchez-Leos and Meredith Halsey. Our theme music is The Original Chicago Blues, which was composed by James White in 1915 and performed by Katerina Storchius in 2021. Artwork is by Laura Gosdell. Special thanks to everyone who helped make this season possible, including the friends and family who listened, gave constructive feedback, and offered advice and pointers on recording and editing. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe to Murderland Chicago, A Deep Dish of Death on your podcast app. Follow us on Patreon at Murderland Chicago. And find us on Instagram at Deep Dish of Death. Throughout the making of this podcast, we did quite a bit of research to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, but we know that sometimes information sources contain errors, and we accept that, in conversation, we may have introduced errors to the stories. To that point, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please send any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors to us at deepdishofdeath at gmail.com.